Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. The second reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. It can be found on page 1186 of your church Bibles. It's 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, reading from verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've got um, the notice sheet that on the back of the light blue thing, there's a little bit of an outline if you tend to get lost in sermons, my sermons, any sermons. So if you find that helpful, um, use that as a little roadmap. That's where we're going. Do keep uh, 1 Thessalonians open. That's where we're going to be camping out uh, for the next 25 minutes or so. It's page uh, 1186, if you've lost it. But let me just um, say a prayer, ask for God's help. 
the Lord Jesus Christ um, removed scales from people's eyes. He enabled the blind to see. And by nature, Heavenly Father, we're blind spiritually. We cannot see the things of you. Please would you remove the scales from our eyes, enable us to see, and enable us to love you as we see you more clearly. Amen. Well, our world is full of fakes, full of fakes. Apparently, uh, the Chinese market is filled with fakes. It's the chief counterfeit uh, market in the world. 7% of Chinese GDP is filled with counterfeit goods, the buying and the selling of it. On the global scale, apparently 5 to 7% of volume of sales and purchasing is of fake goods. And if you know what to look for amongst counterfeit objects, they're pretty easy to spot, I'm told. As a teen, I had a puffer jacket, used to love it, and on the back of it, it said Tommy Hill Finger. And uh, for those of you who know that, make, you'd see quite clearly it, it was a fake. I loved it and had no idea whatsoever it wasn't Tommy Hill Finger. So objects are easy to spot as counterfeits, but fake people Now, they're hard to spot. Fake people are hard to spot. So you you may have seen the film um, Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo DiCaprio. Have you seen that where he plays the part? It's actually a true-life story of a man who uh, goes on the run from the cops and takes on a number of false identities and uh, pretends to be a Pan Am pilot. For six years, he gets away with living the life of Riley, loving it, because fake people are hard to spot. Or you may have heard about the um, uh, financial scams that Charles Ponzi and then, what's the name of the other, Bernard Madoff uh, ran, whereby they paid earlier investors with later investors' money. It's a pyramid scheme, I believe it's called. And they both got away with living a life of a millionaire, billionaire, for years. Because fake people are hard to spot. Uh, Ponzi managed to get away with uh, defrauding people of $20 million in the 1920s. A lot of money back then. Bernard Madoff, $18 billion. Because fake people are hard to spot. So our world is filled with fakes. But what about the church? What about us? What about followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we tell whether somebody, a man or a woman, is a true, authentic Tommy Hilfiger, not Tommy Hilfinger, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that even possible? After all, doesn't Jesus warn us not to judge people? Aren't we told that only God can see into the heart? Is it possible to tell who's an authentic, de facto Christian or not? Well, the Apostle Paul is quite clear. Have a look down, if you will, at verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He says, I can tell who's a real Christian, who is not. I know that God has chosen you, Thessalonian Christians. You're Tommy Hilfiger. You're not a knockoff fake. So he's pretty sure you can tell. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica, and we heard the story of how that church came into being as Sean read it for us. And essentially what happens is Paul and his mates bowl into this, this town, Thessalonica, and they find the local synagogue on GMAPs, 
and they let themselves in and they set up the equivalent of TED talks, if you ever watch those on TV, and they give talks, Paul supremely, over the course of a brief three-week period. And they find that crowds gather to hear Paul. And indeed, a number of people would echo Kenny's story that they heard this message and they found it so compelling, were convinced that it was true about the Lord Jesus Christ dying and rising again physically to die for their sins, that they became Christians. Amazing. In fact, enough people became Christians that a whole new church was able to start. A whole new St. Michael's, not Chester Square, but Thessalonica. Until the Jews started to get jealous, we're told in that Acts passage. They get jealous, and I presume jealous of the fact that their mates used to go to the synagogue, and now, look, Kenny's coming to the church. And so they get quite angry about that. So angry, in fact, that there's a precursor to the London riots, and they chuck Paul and his mates out of town. So they're bundled off down the road. They're only there for three weeks. How can Paul be so sure, only having known these people for three weeks' time, that they are the real deal, that they are real, authentic Christians? And the answer, well, we're going to see that over the next few minutes, is that rather like very expensive jewelry, I'm told, they bore hallmarks of authenticity. So that if we were to haul them over a jeweler's desk and wield a very powerful uh, microscope over them, we would see, I'm going to suggest, we're going to see four hallmarks of authenticity in them. So what we're going to do is look at all four of those, and if we're brave enough at the end, I suggest that we will turn the microscope on ourselves and see whether we spot the same hallmarks of authenticity. Am I a real follower of Jesus in ourselves? So it's a, it's a brave thing to do if you're up for it. Let's dive in. First hallmark of authenticity is motivation and behavior. Motivation and behavior. Verse 3, have a look down if you will. Paul says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ever since Paul had to leave Thessalonica, he'd been worried sick about them, doing his best impression of a mother with a teenage son. He couldn't sleep at night. He was thinking, how are they doing? I hope they're flourishing as Christians, but I just don't know. It was before the days of email. And so he sends Timothy, his buddy, to go and check on, check on them. Sends him off. Timothy takes a while, finds out, comes back to Paul with great news. There's a smile on his face. Before Timothy even opens his mouth, Paul knows it's good news. Because Timothy comes back with stories of their faith. They've still got faith that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior in the universe who can save us by his death on the cross for heaven. Of their hope, their concrete certainty that this life is not all that there is, that the new creation, perfect place, is just around the corner with Jesus. Faith, hope, and love. That they'd been freed supernaturally so that they loved God and loved neighbor more than they loved themselves. Timothy has this great news for Paul, and you can almost feel Paul visibly relax. It's okay. They're doing all right. They, they have faith, and they have hope, and they have love. Now, as a preacher, I'd love to focus. We could preach a whole sermon on those three words, but we've got to move on. Time is of the essence. What I want us to notice now is that those motivations, faith, hope, and love, 
come with a certain set of behaviors, motivation and behavior. It's important the two come together. Now, last week, Katie and I were in Sardinia for 10 days. And me being a simple sort of a man, I'm very easily pleased. Lots of the uh, beaches are pebbly. And uh, what I'd love to do, and I still do, I love to throw rocks, stones into bodies of water. I don't know. I just enjoy it. I love the sound the stone makes when it hits the big flump and then the white water and then the ripples just arcing out and changing the surface of the water. It's great fun, and it's easy for Katie. It's cheap, you know. And you can see the bathers scatter as I throw. But you see, when I throw a rock in the water, there are always ripples, rock and ripples. I couldn't have ripples without the rock, couldn't have the rock without the ripples. The two come together. And it's the same in the Christian life. When motivations like faith, hope, and love in the gospel are thrown into our lives... They will cause huge ripples that will change our behavior radically, inside out and upside down. They always come together. And the danger is we try and separate those two. Some people like to say, well, yes, I'm a person of faith, a Christian. I would subscribe to the promises that Kenny made earlier. But no, there's no change in my behavior. I'm not really into living a godly life. I'm a person of faith. It's a private thing. No, they always come together. Do you see, Paul, he says, the faith, hope, and love come hand in hand with the laboring and the enduring, the actual hard work of living the Christian life. Whenever we say the creed, when we sometimes say that in the evening service, stand up and say, I believe in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and so on, we are saying certain things that are essentially rocks that will cause ripples throughout our lives that will change us because that motivation always comes with a change in behavior godliness. The second mistake to make is to try and change our behavior without having a new set of motivations, without being changed from the inside. Last week, Kate and I went into the Nike store. It's on Oxford Street, isn't it? And have you you ever been into the Nike store? They're a big flagship store. And one of the things you find quite alarmingly is that all the staff have to wear Nike kit. In fact, they all seem to have, have to wear Lycra, it turns out. And it's a funny, funny old thing, but when, when you start to talk to any of the members of staff, they look like athletes, but uh, many of them couldn't run a mile. <laughs> because you cannot make an athlete by changing their exterior. We'll know that if you hang around London any length of time. You can't wear lycra and become an Olympian. Because you have to be changed from the inside. It's a whole set of motivations you need to take on board, and then our behaviors will change. And it's the same in the Christian life. We cannot try and short-circuit the Christian life and try and pull our socks up and behave in Christian ways. Maybe come to church occasionally, like Kenny used to do. Pray occasionally when we're in trouble or it's exam season. Maybe try and do the right thing in the office without those set of motivations, faith, hope, and love. It just won't work for us. In fact, we'll become very tired by that way of living because we'll have no fuel in the tank. We'll be like a car trying to drive with no petrol in the tank. We'll be trying to impress other people or impress God. And that's not motivation enough for a change in behavior. We need to have been changed from the inside with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all he's done for us. Hope in heaven ahead and love for our neighbor that comes from the Lord. So those two must come hand in hand. It's the first hallmark uh, of authentic Christianity. Second hallmark is this, understanding and transformation. 
understanding and transformation. Have a look down, if you would, at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, We know that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Hallmark, too, is that authentic Christians both understand the gospel and are transformed by the gospel. But what does Paul mean? He says there, our gospel came to you, not simply with words. What do you think that that means? Was it that when he set up his equivalent of TED Talks in the synagogue, he jazzed up his kind of speeches with with a PowerPoint display, not not simply with words, but, you know, maybe even had the, the sound effects when the PowerPoint slides came on, Or was it that he did a sort of bit of interpretative dance or a bit of art on the side, you know, not simply with words? Was it it that? What does he mean, not simply with words? Well, no, I think he's saying that the gospel message is communicated in words, but when somebody becomes a Christian, when Kenny became a Christian, it wasn't just simply an act of comprehension for him. It wasn't simply a question of Kenny saying, oh, yes, now I understand the gospel message. It was a question of him understanding the words of the gospel and then having his life changed from the inside out, being transformed by it. Not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. So that when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, God the Holy Spirit, and gets his toolbox out and gets to work on their relationships, on the way they use their wallet and their will. Every aspect of life is changed by the Holy Spirit. They're absolutely transformed. Because the gospel is not a text purely to be comprehended. It's not a formula to be reduced to understand it. It's not a verb to be um, What's the word for what you do with a verb? Conjugated. It's a power to be transformed by. And that's what Kenny was testifying to earlier. And I think there are two mistakes we often make that this verse corrects. Mysticism and intellectualism. Mysticism and intellectualism. Mysticism, first of all, is quite common actually these days. This is what mysticism is. They say, I'm a fan of words. Words are very useful for um, telling someone how to get to my house, giving directions, or or telling a joke. Words are very useful, but they actually don't really cut the mustard when it comes to God. When it comes to God, you can't really use words. You have to somehow sit in a quiet room with with a candle and it gets all spiritual and maybe have whale song uh, on a CD player. You need to move beyond words to understand God, some, some people might think. But the problem with that way of thinking is Paul and the rest of the Bible writers are really quite into words. I don't know whether you noticed, but um, God in his wisdom gave us a book. And it's, it's not a leaflet, it's a book. It's really, it's really quite a big one. And uh, if you've read it at all, you'll see it's filled with quite a few different words. And in fact, the words come in sentences, and the sentences come in paragraphs, and the paragraphs come in chapters, and the chapters come in whole books. And the books are knit together to make the Bible. So that actually... Although it's not simply with words, God does communicate himself through words. 
And we'll know that personally. Kenny knows that personally as he came personally into contact with God through reading this book as the Spirit changed his life. So not mysticism. Secondly, not intellectualism. Not intellectualism. It's a second mistake, which may be more common amongst some of us. Intellectualism says, says this. Intellectualism says you can understand your way into the kingdom of God. It is just an act of comprehension. So the intellectualist Christian will always be thinking, does my friend understand this? Do they get it? Has the penny dropped in their mind? And that's a good question to ask, but it's not the only question. Because Paul says it's not a question of only just, just of words, of understanding them, but also of power and of being transformed by them and of being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. So intellectualism is, is a reduction. That can't be the full truth. We need to understand the message, as Kenny did, and be transformed by it, as Kenny is being. Hallmark number three, imitation and modeling. Imitation and modeling. Verses six to eight. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And then down to verse seven. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, whether we like it or not, um, we're born imitators of people, right? We end up imitating the people, either just the people around us or maybe people we especially look up to. So one of my brothers has been living in Australia now for two years, and I came across a video of him on, online, and to my horror, he's begun to pick up an Australian twang. Horror. Or if you go and live in the States for a little while, you may come back walking on sidewalks and watching movies and, and eating tomatoes and wearing pants in public. Because actually, we're born imitators. We imitate the people around us. And Paul says, yes, I know that. Now, as a Christian, we need to be careful whom we imitate. Imitate the right people, not the wrong people. And in fact, for Kenny and for all of us, that's why church is so wonderful, one of the reasons. Because church is a place where hopefully there are great models of people to follow. It's not that the Thessalonians were brainwashed in a sort of cultic way and had to just kind of follow what everyone else is doing in, in a sort of monkey see, monkey do kind of unthinking way. But it's that as they understood the gospel, they had to work out what that gospel looked like to live it out in Thessalonica. Same for Kenny. He becomes a Christian and needs to work out what it looks like in Belgravia, although you're hardly ever here. So it's useful to have people to imitate. But we don't just imitate good models to follow. It turns out we both imitate and model the Christian life. Both imitate and model the Christian life. Uh, verse, verse 7. And so you became a model. Now, I know that Kenny is a, is a good-looking man, but I don't think Patricia would have thought he'd become a model. Did, did you think that? I don't know. Kenny's looking offended. But Kenny is now, as a, as, a, as a Christian believer, a follower of Jesus, he's a model. He's not modeling fashion, walking down the catwalk. He's modeling what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in daily life. 
And in fact, it's not just Kenny, it's all of us here who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a very powerful thing. Verse 8, if you have a look down, the Lord's message rang out from you as you modeled it. And the word for rang out here in the original has the sense of boom or peal. It's the sound of like, like a loud bell being struck or a trumpet being sounded. It's not the kind of sound that's easy to ignore. It's more loud hailer than whisper. And the point is that modeling the Christian life to a watching world is a very powerful thing for Kenny to do and the rest of us. It's a very loud thing to do. It must have been loud because if you look down, their faith in God has been made known everywhere. It became audible, as it were, across the world. It was so striking. So the point is authentic Christians don't just imitate other older Christians, but we model the Christian life to the rest of the watching world. We don't need sandwich boards telling people what the gospel says. It's not very Belgravia, I know. But we don't need sandwich boards because the gospel's written all over our lives and quick to be on our tongues. So hallmark number four, the last one is this, turning and waiting. Turning and waiting. Now Paul preceded Twitter by quite a number of years. I don't know whether he would have used it if he had had it. But I think his tweet from 1 Thessalonians would be found in verses 9 to 10 if he were to have tweeted Let me read them. They're wonderful verses to have on a baptism Sunday. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Hashtag real Christianity. Now, I counted, and there are just over 140 characters It took me ages to count. But it's a great summary of what Christians believe. Verses 9 to 10. If if you're into learning verses, learn these this week. When we become a Christian, when Kenny became a Christian, he turned from something and to someone. From something and to someone. From idols. Now, the Thessalonians would have been surrounded by idols. Literally, idols on people's shelves in their homes. Quite easy things to spot. We are surrounded by idols today, 21st century London. They're not on shelves by and large, but they're normally on billboards or in magazines or on TV screens. And to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it involves turning from those idols. They're often good things which we've allowed to become God things. Good things that have taken God's number one spot in our lives. And they can be hard to work out what they are for us. They'll vary according to who we are. But will you let me to ask a few impertinent questions as we try and diagnose what they might be for us? Okay, here's here's the first question to work out what our idols are. What or whom is the thing or person we think we couldn't live without? What or whom is the thing or person we think we couldn't live without. What or whom is the thing or person we daydream or have nightmares about? Daydream or nightmares? 
Or finally, what or whom is the thing or person which acts as a screensaver for us? You know, when we shut our eyes or when we put our minds in neutral, it's there. Screensaver. What's that thing or who's that person? Well, those are our idols. I want you to try and hold in your mind the, the, the thing that came to mind, if there was a clear thing. That's, that's your idol. It could be all sorts of things. It could be health. It could be image. It could be popularity, success, recognition, promotion, security, comfort, romance. Uh, idols of control seen in our overtidiness or frustration when our schedule doesn't work out. All sorts of things. But the authentic Christian turns from those good things and towards the living God and puts God on the number one spot. We turn. And when we stop for a moment to compare those things that were in our minds, when we compare them to God, it's a no-brainer that he should be number one. God, capital G. Because on any metric you choose, God trumps our idols. I mean, Paul puts two of them down here, that, that God is the living God. He's the God in whom there is life itself. And there's no idol that's animate or living. Mine aren't. He's more living than even any person. And God is the true God, capital T. He's truth, personified. Now, idols are full of deceit and lies. They promise fulfillment or happiness or rest or relaxation, but they, they never properly deliver. They're not true, but God is. Turning and waiting. Waiting. This is the final thing. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. When my um, parents gave me a Bible when I first became a Christian when I was a teenager, my father wrote something in the front of it, which I think is so wonderfully true. I want to share it with you, and it fits with this passage. He wrote in his scrawly hand, the best is always yet to come. The best is always yet to come. And that is something that is true for the Christian, whatever stage of life we're at. So maybe we've been struggling with ill health for some time. The best is always yet to come because the new creation is just around the corner with the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we're past childbearing age and we wish that we could have had children, but we probably never will. The best is always yet to come. Maybe our dream plan for our career just isn't kind of panning out. It might not happen. The best is always yet to come. Maybe we always wanted to get married and currently, it doesn't look like we will. The best is always yet to come. Maybe when we get to old age, this is what I was saying this morning to some of the older folk at church, our mind isn't what it once was. No matter how many Sudokus we do. I was saying to them, the best is yet to come. Maybe when our spouse dies, if we're married and we're bereaved terribly hard, the best is always yet to come. Even when we are rasping our dying breath, for the Christian, the best is yet to come. And therefore, the Christian life is full of waiting for the best. The best is not now. The best is always yet to come. 
Maybe we've been making sacrifices, putting God first and ourselves second. And it's just so hard to keep on doing it. The best is yet to come. And I cannot wait for that best. I cannot wait for that best. I cannot wait for the stimulation of ruling the new creation, this world here, perfected with Christ and with you lot, with the church. I think that's going to be amazing. I cannot wait for the sumptuousness of a banquet, the joy of a song, the security of a city, and the glory of gold, all wrapped into one moment and one place. That's what the new creation will be like. I cannot wait to be singing songs of praise to the person who's right at the middle of it all, who's as untamable as a lion, who's as humble as a bloodied lamb, and he goes by the name Jesus Christ. And I cannot wait for that moment when I will just sense my lips moving and my diaphragm engaged and my larynx speaking, even singing, and I listen to what I'm singing and I'm saying, worthy, 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 worthy are you, Lord Jesus Christ, to receive praise and glory and honor. I can't wait for hearing those words, maybe from him, to me, under the song, well done, my good and faithful servant. The best is always yet to come. And therefore the Christian life is a life of turning, and I know that's hard from those idols, we love them. But it's also a life of waiting for that best that's just around the corner. So there we go. Thessalonians under the magnifying glass who've seen their hallmarks and we can see now why they're the real deal. Are you brave enough to turn the magnifying glass on you? Well now comes that moment. Have a look over those points. It might be that something particularly applies to you or me. I wonder what that is. Now, now some of us are depressive perfectionists. I won't ask us to put up our hands but I've got a few ideas of who they are. And we are never content. With, 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 we always feel condemned maybe when we come to church or when we read the Bible. We always think, I'm not making the grade. And, and sometimes that, that, that attacks our assurance. Maybe we think we're not converted, actually. And I want to say to you, if that's you, and you probably know if it is, it's the direction of life as a Christian that's the important thing. Over a period of 10 years, a decade, or 20 years, or a lifetime, are we seeing that we're growing in some of those hallmarks? If so, fantastic. I want to rejoice with you. Some of us are lazy optimists. And to be honest, we're quite content with where we are spiritually, whatever the situation, however ugly we may be spiritually. Now, if that's you, if that's me, the letter of Thessalonians has no place for complacency. Paul goes on later to say, look, you're doing really well, guys, but... We need to be doing it more and more. I want to urge some of us to do that. Maybe that some of us, like Kenny, two years, a year ago, sitting very much on the outside of things. You've been listening to me and you thought he's... No idea what he's talking about. <laughs> if, if as you, keep looking, keep coming, think about it more. That's great. That's what Kenny's story is all about. Let's close and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for showing us what the authentic Christian life looks like.
And we thank you most of all for giving us your Holy Spirit if we belong to you and for empowering us to live exactly that life. I pray for those exact issues that you've put your finger on over the last few minutes in our lives, different issues, I'm sure. Please empower us to live authentic Christian lives in those areas. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.